0: I'm crying before we get started. That's not good. It's not going to end well. Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is where we're going to be. Matthew 28, 16 to 20. If you hit Mark, you've gone too far. But not a lot far. Just Matthew 28, 16 to 20. The last few weeks we've been working through a summary of the key themes of Matthew. Afterward, after we get done with this uh, summary, which will will be next week, will be the last, last one in it, um, we will start the book of Philippians. Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, will be in Philippians in a couple of weeks, uh, February 13th, I think, if that's right. Um, three weeks ago, uh, we saw that one of the key themes of Matthew is that the life of the Christian should demonstrate the growth and the production of the fruit that the of the Spirit dwelling within them. So we see that in the Sermon on the Mount there. Jesus says that the citizens of his kingdom, people that have the Spirit dwelling within them, are producing poverty of spirit, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, all of these things growing steadily in the life of a Christian over time. But then two weeks ago we saw that this is impossible without the Holy Spirit actually taking up residence in Inside the person, and unless that happens, unless the Holy Spirit comes in and invades the heart of the individual, he's powerless to produce any real change that is pleasing to God. He's powerless to to produce his own repentance. He's powerless to produce his own faith. All of those things are a product of the Spirit dwelling within. The Spirit has to come in first in conversion, and then produce all of those things in the life of the believer. So Christianity, then, is not just a try-harder religion. That's not what we're preaching to anyone, just try-harder. It's a you-must-be-born-again religion. The the Spirit has to come in and change your heart. You must be born again in order to produce the righteousness that God requires and live a righteous life that God requires. And so the Spirit must be in you for that fruit to be produced. Last week we saw that if, if we are in a room like this one, filled with born-again believers who constitute the membership of a church, then we individually should be expected in our lives to be growing the fruit that the Spirit within us produces, right? That's a logical conclusion. Jesus even says that, so it's not just logical, it's also in His Word. The Spirit dwelling within us should produce fruit. Therefore, if you're in a room gathered together with other members of the body, This fruit should be growing in you and should be being produced over time. So what then do we do with a supposed Christian, one who is in the membership of the body of Christ, who continues in unrepentant sin? You warn them, and in spite of the warning, they persist in unrepentant sin. They're demonstrating to the church body as a whole that they aren't truly born again. The fruit of repentance, in other words, is not produced in their life, in which case... We saw in Matthew 18, they're to be removed from membership. We're going to continue our review, but remember that we're focusing on really how the Gospel of Matthew, this broad Gospel, 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, applies both to our congregation as a whole, EBC, Emmanuel Baptist Church, here in Tuscaloosa, how does it apply to us as a whole, as a body, but then also drilling down to individually, how does it apply to us as individual Christians in our Christian lives? So hopefully we're getting to pr- practical things with this word, how, how does, what must we as a congregation do with this, this text of Matthew, but then also what must I do individually with the Gospel of Matthew? And so it's in that spirit that we're going to be looking at the Great Commission for two straight weeks. This Week We're looking at verses 18 and 19 primarily, and then next week, verse 20. And so today is really thinking about how do we as a church body and as individuals embrace true missional living? What does it mean to be a Great Commissioned Church? You're going to hear every church will say, we're a Great Commissioned Church. But what does it actually mean to be a Great Commissioned Church? And then next week we're going to look at our own individual pursuits of making disciples. How you do that. What that really looks like. So these two sermons were really designed to be put together. But let's look first at at the passage in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear the promise of Jesus Christ to us, to his disciples, to his church. That he is with us always to the end of the age. That it's on his authority that we share the gospel. We pray that you help us to understand that, to unpack it now, to apply it to our lives and to the life of our church. Pray this for your help, through your spirit, to understand this and apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus is just raised from the dead. That's where we are in the gospel of Matthew. He's just raised from the dead, and he told his disciples, Meet me in Galilee which is where he is, he's meeting them there. And as he approaches, most of them, it says, they bow their faces, they worship him, they bow their faces to the ground because they recognize that this is Jesus who is risen from the dead, and they begin to worship him. But in the midst of this group of disciples, some of them still have their doubts. They're not quite sure that what they're seeing is real. Nevertheless, Jesus gives them one final charge before he sends them out and before the gospel closes And, of course, the charge is there in verse 19 and 20. Look with me. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, the lion's share of the teaching on this passage drills right down to focus on exactly this command here by Jesus. Jesus commissions his disciples to go out into the world, and they are to make disciples Baptizing and teaching, and all of that. And rightly so. That should deserve the lion's share of the teaching. This is not only the end of the Gospel of Matthew, but this is what the whole Gospel is really boiling up to. We see Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, which is the climax of the story. He is raised from the dead, but then it results in something. The whole direction of the Gospel of Matthew is going towards Jesus not only building his church on his crucifixion and his resurrection, but then commissioning his church out. Remember, Matthew is presumably writing this Gospel to his church. And so he's telling them, listen, this is what Jesus' resurrection actually means for us. This is what the Great Commission actually does. So before in the Gospel, he's been telling everybody to keep quiet about who he was, tell no one about this. And now, there's this reversal. Now that he's raised from the dead, he's telling everyone, blab it all. Go to all the nations and tell everyone. These two verses have informed much of the identity of the evangelical church. The Southern Baptist Church. Did you know that in the Southern Baptist Church, in Southern Baptist polity, we actually have in there, we could also call ourselves Great Commission Baptists. That's an alternative name to Southern Baptist. Many churches up north will call themselves Great Commission Baptists, and that's what that means. They're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. But this passage is the root of what it means to be evangelical. We go tell the good news. We go blab it to all the nations, and we tell them what good news is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there can be forgiveness of sin and the like. But sometimes the foundation of this passage can get lost when we simply focus on the commission here in 19 and 20. This passage is actually both foundation and commission. And I want to spend a good deal of time looking at the foundation and then part of the commission. So this week we're focusing on 18 and 19. Next week, verse 20, where we're going to talk about the role that you play in discipling someone next week. But... but uh, what, what do we do with this passage is here. First, let's look at the foundation in verse 18. This is the part that we often skip over. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, the, the reason that we know that this is the foundation is because verse 19 starts with what? Two words. Go, therefore. And I'm quite confident You might not know much else about the Bible, but there's a really good chance, even just being generally familiar with the Bible, you've been taught the number one Bible study technique taught to every young Christian. When you see a therefore, you ask, what is it there for? And it's for good reason that you're taught, what is it there for? It's a good question to ask. Because when you see a therefore, it's establishing a chain of logic that says, what I'm about to tell you is based on the foundation of what I've just told you. What I'm about to tell you is based on the foundation of what I've just told you. So, you also have have to ask then, what is it there for? In other words, what did he just tell us? Well, it seems that to Jesus... He sees all authority in heaven and on earth having been given to him as very important. In fact, the foundation for the disciples then going to the nations and telling the good news of the resurrection. So then it's important for us then to ask, what authority is he actually talking about? What what does he mean here, all authority? Isn't he the son of God? Doesn't he have all authority then? Kind of, right? Shouldn't he? I know I've said these things before, but I want to repeat them because they're crucial for us to understand what's happening here. Remember back in chapter 26, just a couple chapters before, Jesus is on trial, and Caiaphas is the high priest at the time, and he has really nothing for which he can put Jesus to death. And this is obviously a huge problem because the Jews can't kill anyone. They have to turn them over to the Romans. And for the Romans to crucify someone, Pilate, who is the governor at the time of the area He's going to need more than what Caiaphas has in order to put Jesus to death. And so Caiaphas, in his seeming moment of desperation, he turns to Jesus and he says in 2663, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. He's asking him, just commit blasphemy right here, please. Just please, will you do that? To which Jesus responds in verse 64, the very next verse, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All right. Now you think, well, that's a confession, sure, but sort of a weird one, right? He says some strange things about the Son of Man. In fact, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man a lot, and it confuses a lot of people. But a few months back, when I taught this passage in 26, 63, and 64, I said that Jesus was quoting there from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And remember, in Daniel 7, God gives Daniel this vision. And in his vision, he sees this pattern. One beast that represents an earthly kingdom, he sees, that rises up and he's gnarly and fearsome and terrible and he conquers and he has all these great boasts and he kind of rules the world in his image. This is a kingdom that he sees in this dream represented by a beast. And then he sees, coming after that, another gnarly, terrible beast, more gnarly and terrible than the one that came before it. He rises up and conquers. The previous one. And then he sees this succession, this chain of succession happening. One beast rising up more gnarly and swifter and stronger than the one that came before it. Until finally he sees a fourth beast and this fourth beast rises up and he's the most powerful of all. He conquers, he makes great boasts, kills all the beasts or destroys all the authority of the beast that came before him. But then something happens in his dream. All of these beasts are sitting on thrones, and there's one throne which remains empty. And in the vision, amid the chaos of all these beasts rising up and conquering one another, there comes in one that's called the Ancient of Days, God the Father. He enters the room, and all of the beasts go quiet all of the chaos, chaos ceases. But except for the fourth beast, he continues to run his mouth and continues to talk. And so the Ancient of Days, with the snap of his finger, Daniel doesn't say that, I kind of added that, but with the snap of his finger, the Ancient of Days slaughters him and throws his dead carcass in the fire. Well, that'll shut him up. So he turns to the rest of the beasts and he takes their authority And their authority is represented by a crown on their head. He takes their authority from them and he allows them to live for a little while. And then this happens in verse 13. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And he was given, and and to him, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here comes the one like the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and he gains authority and everlasting dominion a crown is placed on his head. So in the middle of all this, not only is the dominion of the beasts taken away, but then the the dominion, the reign, the true reign and everlasting dominion is given to one like a son of man. He comes riding on the clouds of heaven. He's presented before the ancient of days. And God the Father there crowns him. And following the dominion being given to this one like the son of man, the cloud rider, No other beast will ever take that dominion back. So that chain of one beast rising up and the next one and then the next one and the next one ends. It's over. Dominion is given to one like the Son of Man, the Cloud Rider, and no one will ever take that away. Jesus, in Matthew 26, is asked by Caiaphas, Are you the Christ? That passage in Daniel came to be seen as a messianic passage, meaning that cloud rider, that one coming to get authority, that is the Messiah. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God, Caiaphas says. And Jesus says, you have said so. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's telling Caiaphas in no uncertain terms, Daniel saw a vision of me. The authority from all the beasts is given to me. He's telling Caiaphas in no uncertain terms that your crown and kingdom is coming to an end. All things will rest on me. And he tells Caiaphas, you're going to see this happen. Well, when does Caiaphas see this happen? Well, he crucifies him. Then he puts him in the grave. And then he raises from the dead. At which point Jesus tells his disciples, all authority has been given to me. You see, we, we believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what that tells us is that Jesus, though perfect, went to the cross in my place. To suffer the wrath of God for me. Knowing that I could never provide my own righteousness. I could never live the kind of life that would be worthy of eternal life. Never could I ever do that. Not all of my righteous deeds could never be heaped up high enough that I would ever deserve more than eternity in hell. Why? Because I'm a sinner. That's why. But you see, my righteousness is measured up against the righteousness of God. So no matter what you ever could possibly ever do, will you ever be as righteous as God? No. The answer is no. Let me just save you from having to answer that question. So Jesus, who lives a righteous life, goes to the cross and there suffers the punishment that I deserve for my sin on my behalf. God literally pours out the wrath that he has for me on the shoulders of Christ. So in that, Jesus buys me back from the dead by granting to me forgiveness for my sin. But then they put him in the grave. And they think, well, it's all over at this point because he's in the grave. He's dead. But three days later, he rises from the dead. Why? Because he committed no sin. The grave had no hold on him because he has no sin of his own. So he rises from the dead and he declares to all of us, not only are your sins forgiven, but because I've risen from the dead, you too can have eternal life. If your sins are forgiven, the grave has no hold on you either. See, we believe in the gospel. So when Jesus raises from the dead, after they put him to death, He tells his disciples, all authority has been given to me now. The ones who follow after me won't taste death, you understand. Oh, you may go in the casket. But you'll be mine forever. Eternal life will be yours. But wait, there's more. At the end of this passage, do you notice what he says? The very last words. He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The age meaning the church age, the final days. I'm with you to the end of the age, which we're still in. But if you remember last week, we saw that he has a promise there for his church as well in Matthew 18. So here he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Look in 1820, it'll show up on the screen behind you, you don't have to turn there. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Oh, that sounds a lot like the promise that we just heard in the Great Commission. And he said that there in Matthew 18 in regard to the church gathering together as they're trying to make a decision about how to treat certain individuals who claim to be members of the body of Christ, but then went off into unrepentant sin. And he promises there, when they decide that this person is a Gentile or tax collector, meaning this person is an unbeliever, not a member of the body of Christ, he says, he promises, I'm going to be there with you, church. As you do this, I'm going to be there aiding them in their decision and affirming and empowering their decisions. So the church in submission to Jesus then, he's telling them, has the authority to execute his will on his behalf. I'm with you in that. I'm there with you as my church performs its churchly functions. I am there with you. So now we flash forward to the Great Commission just 10 chapters later, and he promises really the same thing. But here it's not in the context of the church kicking somebody out. It's kind of in the opposite context it's actually in the church going and telling the gospel and bringing people in it's in the context of the whole church body embracing true missional living in other words we should think of the great commission in a similar context to how we think of church discipline that just as you would discipline someone on the foundation of the authority of Christ and that it would be empowered by Jesus' ongoing presence with His church, so we should also see the Great Commission as a collective issue. It's built on the foundation of Christ's authority for us to go out to the nations. But not only that, it's empowered by His ongoing presence with us We can go to the nations because Christ is going with us. We can do that as a church body. We can go to the nations around us and and we can trust that Christ will be with us. But also, it's enacted in the same way. The Great Commission is enacted in the same way church discipline is enacted. The whole church, every single member, being on board with all of this. The Great Commission is not merely an individual's command, you understand? It's not simply an individual's command. That's not really who he's talking to. It's a command to the whole church body. And what he's saying is each cog in the wheel plays a vital role in the commissioning, in the going. It's built on me as a foundation. It's the church's function. It's every piece of the church that's built on me. That finds its authority in me. Who sees his headship in me. Every single individual. This is a command to all of us. Everyone's going to play a part. It's our mission as a team. And each member should be pulling in the same exact direction. So when he says... I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Is he talking to you as an individual? Am I to believe that Jesus goes with me individually? Well, yes. Absolutely. In fact, his Holy Spirit is sent to each and every believer And by His Holy Spirit, He produces the fruits of righteousness. He comforts, He corrects, He guides through His Word. He helps to understand and interpret and apply His Word to your life. He produces the fruit that would have you go and tell the gospel. But He's assuring the church collectively that He is with them in a special way, even as they discipline people, even as they act toward the Great Commission, even as they play a vital role in people coming to know Christ in the proclamation of the Gospel, as they engage in their missional purpose, this is the foundation of the Great Commission. It's that as Jesus' body engages in Jesus' mission to Jesus' world, the gates of hell though it tries to resist, will not stand against it. Why? Because the very one that rose from the dead promises that he's going to be with his church as they engage this way in the world around them in a special way. But let's look at the commission that he gives us here. Look at verse 19. Because I have the authority, he says, because I will be with you, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, something has changed. It's based on the foundation that because Christ now has the authority, go and tell. Something has fundamentally changed here. And he's telling us that. Formally, this formerly this was a come and see religion we built these massive temple and you were to come and worship God and see what goes on here at this temple. But now I'm telling you things have changed. Go into the nations. There isn't a square inch of the nations. I do not own. That is not mine. Go therefore into it and tell it's changed from come and see to go and tell and so the commissioning that jesus is giving is a command to the whole church back in chapter 18 how do you correct someone well you go and tell him your sin his sin if he doesn't listen to you what do you do you take two or three more if he doesn't listen to the two or three what do you do you tell it to the whole church. And then the whole church, all y'all are to let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector if he fails to listen to all y'all. So he's talking to the future elders of the church, of the first Baptist church at Jerusalem, right here in Matthew 18. He's, t- he's talking to them, they're, they're about to pastor thousands together together. They're all going to be teaching these thousands. They're located in Jerusalem. And he's telling them that they're to lead this, they're, his church this way. They're going to look out for wandering sheep that go astray, that wander into sin. But he's not just telling it to them. You understand? He says, tell it to the church. The whole church, Broadly. And let him be to all y'all as a Gentile or tax collector. So what that means is that it's not just the elders' responsibility to go after the wayward sheep. It is the responsibility of every single member in the congregation playing their part to go after the wandering sheep. Leave the 99 and pursue the one to bring them back into the fold. And so now he's commissioning these very same elders, minus Judas, of course. He's commissioning these very same elders to lead his church by making disciples and baptizing them. But this is also a whole church endeavor. Every single member of the church plays just as much a vital cog in the effort And so the commissioning is to every single one of us as a whole body as we're supposed to be on board with it. But but let's take it one step further. How does he say that the Great Commission is actually fulfilled? Well, he says baptizing and making disciples, which he's going to go on to clarify the making of disciples, is teaching them to obey all of these commandments. We're going to talk about that next week. Doesn't that sound like what the church body does Sunday by Sunday? Doesn't it sound like when you hear that, how are we supposed to make disciples? Doesn't it sound like what the church does every Sunday? Baptizing, teaching to obey. We collectively, as a church body, make disciples when we meet together. We baptize, we teach, we admonish, we correct, we train. What is Jesus charging as he leaves? Be a church. Be a church that preaches the word and teaches the word. That lives the word in your daily lives. You have to understand that the local church is the epicenter of the Great Commission. You see that? The local church is the epicenter of the Great Commission. It is the laboratory where disciples are grown and matured. Are you a disciple of Jesus? When you meet here on Sunday, or perhaps you come on Wednesday to Wednesday night Bible study, maybe you'll come tomorrow for feast, or maybe you come Tuesday for prayer meeting. Are you grown and matured as a disciple? Are you corrected as a disciple? Are you taught to obey all that he has commanded you? Are you? This means yes. Now, how is that not a fulfillment of the Great Commission? How is that not the ultimate purpose of the Great Commission? That means that the goal in your disciple-making endeavors, in the community around us, in our case Tuscaloosa, is not only to share the gospel with others, of course it is that, but then it's to bring those disciples into the local church where they gather together with a body of believers, where they submit to the teaching, the correction, the edification, and the exhortation of the local church, where they grow in understanding what it means to follow Christ. They need to be a part of a local church that actually holds them accountable for their convictions. So you and me and all new disciples, literally every Christian, needs to be a part of a local church that will, yes, discipline the wayward, for sure. That will encourage the downhearted. That's going to teach and that's going to train everyone that we may all be equipped for every good work. I want you to imagine for just a second that you're a soldier in a war. Your commander has sent you and a number of your compatriots behind enemy lines, and your job is to take down the defenses of the enemy. That's your job. And one night, your team is covertly moving your way through the woods, and you're sneaking up on a village that you're going to take down the defenses of. And as you move through this village, you find out in the woods just on the outskirts of this village a few of your fellow countrymen. They have mud on their faces. They're skinny and frail, shivering in the cold. And you find out as you talk to them that they had been visiting this area on vacation or something right as this conflict had started. And They got scared, and they didn't know what to do, and so they hid. And before they knew it, walls were built up. Armies were marching around. And so all they could do is hide out in the woods, shivering in terror. And then one day, as if by answer to prayer, your team comes along and stumbles upon them. You and your team have two options. See, if which, see, if, see which one you think makes the most sense. First, you could give them your canteen. You could give them whatever food you have on your person. And you could tell them, I'm going to come meet with you personally every week and I'm going to bring you whatever I can smuggle across the border. I'll give you the water in my canteen minus what I needed to get over here. And I, I might even bring two canteens. We'll see. I'll bring you whatever food I can pack on me. And then I'll meet with you here in the same spot once a week where I'll, I'll give you these rations. Well, unless I'm on vacation. In which case it'll be like two weeks. But, but you get the idea. I'll meet you back here. Just come back here and if I'm here, then I'll give you this stuff. Or you could go to option two. Immediately you could get on your walkie-talkie You could radio back to base, and you could say, I've found some fellow citizens. And immediately you can exfiltrate them out of enemy territory and back into their home country. You could take them back to your base, where they could be fed, they could be watered. You can introduce them to all of your fellow citizens, soldiers in the army who can protect them. Which do you think sounds more like a logical operation? Which do you think seems like the better solution? It seems obvious that getting the hostage back to a place of constant nourishment and protection should be the goal, right? Yet, in the church world, it is not hard to find a few that continue to pursue option number one. And one way we see this One of many ways we see this is in ministries that pop up, independent of the church, maybe claiming to work alongside the church, that promise to educate Christians, to train Christians, maybe even evangelize Christians, or perhaps provide something in some way that they might need, all of which is in the pursuit of making disciples. And yet, how the people they're ministering to are supposed to connect back to the local church is often unclear. Some will even offer midweek worship services you can participate in. This is all over university campuses in every city. They'll even offer weekend retreats where they will ironically take the people from worship in their local congregation on Sunday morning Away to a retreat. They'll offer various other activities meant to engage the non believer or perhaps even the believer, and virtually none of it is overseen by a local congregation. It's autonomous. They could be teaching heresy, no one would know. Certainly, no one would be able to correct them. Who knows what they're teaching? Yet in the New Testament, we don't find the apostles engaging in this kind of evangelism. Even Paul doesn't engage in this kind of evangelism. He's first commissioned by a church. Then he goes out, and what does he do when he goes out? He shares the gospel from town to town. And what does he do after he shares the gospel and people come to know Christ? He establishes a local church. He doesn't just establish a local church. Then, in every single church, he he appoints elders in that church to oversee the ministry of that church, and you can see it states that incredibly plainly in Acts 14, 23. You can write that down and go read it later. They appoint elders in every church. So the ministry that then happens in that town is directed by whom? Some parachurch ministry out there on the horizon? No. It's by a local church who fuels it in their community. It's a direct result of those churches shouldering the burdens of the towns that they're in. And that's how you and I became a Christian today is by that happening. Now, I realize that gets churchy. I understand. But here's why that's really important for us to think about. First, it's helpful to understand that this Great Commission is a call to every single Christian in this local church to have his or her heart set on making disciples. In other words, there should be no hiding in the church. You shouldn't be able to, say, to to look at your life and go, there's literally no one that I'm pouring into, that I'm teaching to obey all that He commanded. There's literally no one that I'm ministering to or serving in some way, and yet I can put my head on the pillow at night knowing I've accomplished my, my job. I've accomplished what Christ has called me to do. You are responsible as an individual Christian in a church to make disciples, to serve. You're part of the body. And your job is to have a heart that is burdened for others. And each one of you has a gift, has a giftedness. The Spirit ensures that that is the case. And so, each one of you is called out of your busyness and into service from your local church to your community and back into your local church. Every single one of you. And all of you are called in one way or another to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. To echo the words of Paul from Romans 12:4. in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, no church should be filled with people who merely come and consume. Well, can't I just say, I'm busy. It's a really busy time. It's not me you have to answer to. Ultimately. Is there an exception clause to the Great Commission? But I'm busy. Everyone's busy. In no one's schedule is there like this massive block of emptiness that says, making disciples. There's, it's just not anyone. How do I, as an individual Christian, in my workplace, whatever I am doing, think disciples need to be made here so i would encourage you to spend time thinking as we're going to do in our small groups this afternoon who are you going to reach to whom are you going to minister it might be people within this body in some capacity might be people out there a combination of the two to whom are you going to minister is it a problem in the city that you want to address Is there a burden in particular for a people in this city that you want to reach? Understand that your goal is to go to them in the name of Jesus with the good news of the gospel and rescue them from enemy territory and bring them into the local church. Connect them directly into the lifeblood of the local church where they can be guarded and nourished and helped and aided by you and the rest of us. Are you frustrated with the public school system? Or the private school system? Are you just going to complain about it? Or are you actually going to do something about it? Are you actually going to try to see how you can minister to the administration and the teachers and maybe even the children? There's a school right across the street. When you walk by trash on the side of the road, do you just say, I can't believe people litter, and then just keep walking? Well, if you do, you're guilty of the litter too, you know? Or do you bend down and actually pick it up? Believe it or not, it's not a spiritual gift to just be able to identify the problems. That's not spiritual giftedness. It's not spiritual giftedness to criticize it either. There's a spiritual gift you have to minister to places where you find problems that disturb you. Burdens on your hearts. He equipped you with the tools to do something about it by introducing that problem to the good news of Jesus Christ. That means that when we minister to schools and administrations we're not looking for quick fixes or quick policy changes. We're not going to the school board meetings and railing against the school board for not doing their job or whatever. We're here for long-term ministry. Open-handed, tender-hearted, kind-worded love of Jesus sharing the gospel. There's a tendency to think of things like the public school system as, that's secular. This is sacred. No. How do we know that? Because at the beginning of the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You can walk into the public schools knowing this is Jesus' school. It's not yours. This is Christ's. But you need to understand the gospel. Will believing in the gospel and submitting to Jesus Christ make for better administrators and better school teachers? You bet it will. Will submitting to Jesus Christ make for better students? You bet it will. So how do you go and claim that territory for the kingdom of God, not for the secular? Well, it's not by picketing it's going to be by going in and actually doing hard labor. It may not be the public school system for you. It may be some other thing. But what is it? Where is it? The second reason that this is important for us as a church is because we're called Emmanuel Baptist Church of Tuscaloosa. And that means that our primary obligation to obey the Great Commission is Tuscaloosa and its surrounding areas. So the problems of this city are our problems. They're not their problems. They're our problems. Jesus owns that territory. Those are our problems. The solutions to those problems are sitting in the pews of this church. The beauty of ministering here with internationals aplenty is that you can aim at Tuscaloosa and accidentally hit the whole world. That's just the benefit of living in the city that we live in. But when it comes to our money, where it should be spent, I want to see less of it going out of Tuscaloosa and more of it focused on our ministry in this city. Jesus left, and he left the church we don't need to let the response, our responsibility for the Great Commission fall to a lot of parachurch organizations. We need to be involved in that. Our body, Emmanuel Baptist Church of Tuscaloosa. A church can write a million of dollars worth of checks to the nations and not be a Great Commission church. On the contrary, a church can have nary a dollar to its name but embody every ounce of what Jesus means here as to go and make disciples. The real difference is seen when each member of our body takes the burden that you feel for the community around you and for the lost world around you and leverages it into a way to bring the good news of Jesus to them and to help that place, that organization, that section of the city, that whatever, submit to King Jesus because he owns that piece too. And it's on these front lines of ministry that you face your hardest challenges. Where you think to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Where you start to see the promises of God that He makes in His Word when you ask me, I will give you. It's then that you start to see those promises fulfilled. Man, I'm out here and I'm suffering all these challenges and hardships, but I seem to be asking the Lord for things and and they, they happen. It's like He's paved the way for me. It's almost as if he has promised not only to do for you what you ask, but to be with you along the way. So then we don't have to worry. And we have nothing to fear. Because we serve a resurrected Savior who is kind to us. But he's also strong. So as we go, he promises, I'm with you every step of the way.